Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. This on? Hello? Hello? We're all science people. Science! Exactly. Evolution does some pretty funky things. There's chemistry in here. There's biology in here. The old question in science is how do you know that? Achievement equals skill times effort. That's the recipe for success. I'm about to show you something so cool it'll blow your mind. We can make the world better for everybody. Starting now. Welcome, welcome to Science Rules. I'm your host, Bill Nye. This is the show where science rules. It's a call-in show. If you want to be on the show, and I hope you do, please leave us a voicemail at 201-472-0785 or go to askbillnye.com on the electric internet. You can also check me out on all the social media to find out who our upcoming guests will be. And I am joined today once again by science writer, editor, and dear friend, seriously, Corey S. Powell. Greetings, Corey. Uh, Greetings, Bill. Always a pleasure. Uh, so now, Bill, as your somewhat lesser-known co-host here, I'm fascinated by things that don't get respect. I mean, there's a whole world out there of science and scientists and inventors who sort of fly under the radar. There's a whole field of material science, which a lot of people don't even really know exactly what material science is, and, and they're a handful of famous inventors, and then all the people behind the scenes who did a lot of amazing work, often did the real work, and you don't know their names. It would be so cool if we could have somebody on the show to talk about Would that but that were possible. Would but that we could do that. Yes, Corey. <laughs> Our guest today is Dr. Anissa Ramirez. She is a scientist and science evangelist, specializing, Corey of all things, in material science what? and engine. Yes! Her newest book is The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. And she hosts the podcast, Science Underground. Dr. Anissa Ramirez, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Anissa? Oh, I'm so glad to be here. And of course, you can call me Anissa. All right. So I, as the uh, grandson of a chemist, as the uncle of two chemical engineers, what is the difference between material science and chemistry? Well, now I understand why I like you, because you come from a long line of people who are material scientists. And I've I've got a periodic table right here on the wall, just well, in case. we may have a love fest at the end of this, um, but, but chemistry is interested in molecules and atoms and how they bond. Material science is interested in that, but it's also interested in translating 
how those bonds give rise to how materials behave when we apply electricity or force. So it's, it's not just chemistry, but it's a part of chemistry, and it actually touches on physics as well. Material science originates from metallurgy, and uh, there are people who study ceramics, ceramics, but they all came together, I would say, in the late 60s and 70s to create this field called material science. So it's new in some ways. How much of material science is microscopic and how much of it is, how to say, as big as an I-beam? Oh, material science is all scales. So you can have I-beams for people who study how to make bridges, the best material for bridges. And then you can have nanotechnology, which you have people who are looking at, if I were to get my hair and to shave it 100,000 times, one of those slivers would be the thickness of an atom. We have people who are studying that. So it's all scales. And, and the meetings for material science are incredible because you have people who are thinking about girders and then people who are thinking about the inner workings of atoms all in one place. So at the high end, does it cross over to like geology? I mean, is it like the point where like a building foundation meets the earth or meets a mountain? Sure. I mean, you have to worry about structure. You have to worry about forces, but then you also have to worry about corrosion when you put stuff into the ground. So uh, it touches on all things. And, and a material scientist can't know everything. There's people who specialize in different parts. Well, that's why you're here. Okay, wait. So <laughs> there's a lot to discuss, but one another word I've always loved, well, who doesn't love? Rheology. Rheology. The bending of materials, right? The distortion of materials. Rheology is also about shear forces in, in liquids. So it's, um, it's very messy. Different liquids move differently. If I have water and I were to slap it sideways, that would operate differently if I were to slap molasses. People study these things. Oh, wait, if we're throwing out favorite words, uh, <laughs> one of mine is, tri- is tribology. Do you deal with oh. tribology at all? I actually studied tribology, and uh, okay. you need it for hard disks. Um, your hard disk, it, it's crazy, but it flies. Okay, tri- tribology, let's, let's give a, our listeners a definition. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So tribology is the study of friction. Tribo is, is a term for friction. To and, rub. Uh, to rub and Yeah, exactly, yeah. to rub. I studied the hard disk. It ends up that your hard disk actually has something that flies and then lands on the surface. When they say it crashes, it really does crash. And so a long time ago, when I was working on my dissertation, I figured out the best materials to prevent your hard disks from, from crashing. Carbon. Carbon. Oh, carbon. good old carbon, because it has sliding layers of atoms. It's this, it's this carbon that has a bit of diamond in it and a bit of graphite. So it has the lubrication of graphite, and then it has the hardness of diamond. Amazing. And then, and then you've had a whole career. You were at Bell Labs. You were at Yale. You were at MIT. Tell me a little bit about your own journey through material science before we get to all the other stories that you have like, climbed up to tell. Sure. Well, I, I'm just a kid from Jersey who loves science and wanted to learn as much as I could. Uh, when I got to Brown, I studied material science. That's where I found this, this topic because I had never heard of it. And I have to tell you the first time I heard of it, I actually thought it was boring. But my professor said something on the first day that blew me away. He said, the reason why you don't fall through the floor the reason why the lights work and the reason why my sweater is blue all has to do with the interaction of atoms. And if you can figure out that, you can get them to do new things. When he said that, boom, I said, this is the feel for me. This is blowing my mind. And so I went on the path to uh, go to graduate school at Stanford and study material science. And then I went to Bell Labs, which for me was the best place to do science because it had people who did all kinds of science in one spot. And uh, then went on to Yale and taught there for about 10 years. And then I took this leap into what I call being a science evangelist. A science evangelist. That's right. 
That's cool. So you tell stories from, I'm going to say, the history of science. History of science, but also explain things, you know, what is nanotechnology and uh, how did certain inventions come to be? And also just tell you the backstory of a lot of uh, little known people who did things that made our world possible. You've done a little bit of inventing yourself. I believe you yeah. you did some work in the solder field. I did. Now, solder, you may, next time you go to, you know, the hardware store and you see this metal that can be bent and can be melted very easily, uh, that's called solder and we use it as a glue. Uh, and a couple of years ago, I got a patent because I figured out with a couple of other folks how to make this glue stick to glass. Solder doesn't do that. And, and what we did is if you look at that wonderful periodic table that you have, Bill, at the bottom are two rows of elements called the lanthanides. Those materials are very reactive. We put them into the solder. It allows it to bond to glass. So just tinkering around with solder is one of my uh, pens. So I'll tell you, as a mechanical engineer who uh, took at least one class in material science, metallurgy is its own thing. That's right. Metals have these crazy, um, wonderful properties that uh, justify it being its own field of study, metallurgy. Absolutely. So how does solder work? I have done a lot of soldering. I've gotten great joy out of soldering, mm -hmm. if nothing else, because the smell of the rosin. What does all that do for us? The little smoky smoke that comes off solder. So how does solder work? Don't breathe a lot of that stuff. That's my first takeaway. <laughs> solder is this amazing material because it's a metal. It's strong like a metal, but it can be... It can melt as, you know, you can put it in a frying pan and it will melt. And so that's what makes it very useful because you can work with it in its liquid form and then you can freeze it just at room temperature and it becomes something very solid. So we use it in electronics as a conductive path to let electricity, but we also, things that are very delicate can be supported with solder. So, and it's very cheap. You can think of it as a glue that allows electricity to flow through it. So, yes. Yeah, so does it dissociate the surface? Right. I mean, you mean, why does it actually stick together? What, what makes oh. it glue the gluey things? You can think of it as just collapsing onto it and shrinking onto it. Uh, that's so it's how mechanical. It is mechanical. Some of it is chemical, but most of it is mechanical. So it's hot and it, and it expands. Right. And then when it cools off, it clinches. It, it clinches mm, to where, where it was. And then, yep. All right. Okay. So how in the heck then... Does it stick to glass? Ah, that's uh, why doesn't it stick to glass? Or well, why was, didn't it? Or that's who's the wrinkle. Here? That's the wrinkle. It doesn't really bond to anything. So we put in elements that are very, very reactive that do bond to a lot of things. And so when the solder had those lanthanides, they're very reactive. And so that's the reason why solder has this new ability. And that has great import, I can imagine, in modern electronics, where you're trying to get things to stick to silicon. Yeah? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And you have this very cool book, The Alchemy of Us, which has the word alchemy in the title, which is a little provocative. Alchemy, you know, it, there was a desire a long time ago to convert base metals into gold. It's sort of the precursor for chemistry. And the reason why I use the term alchemy is I really wanted to note that we were talking about materials. And the modification of materials actually shaped culture. So that's the reason why it's the alchemy of us, not just okay, the alchemy okay, okay, of us. Well said, Bill. <laughs> Wait, say Yours, that again. Uh, the <laughs> modifying materials shape culture. Yeah, yeah. That's Tell the premise of the book. That. Well, I will, in the alchemy of us, you'll hear about things like the telegraph. Simple telegraph actually shaped language. And the light bulb is actually shaping us. And silicon is actually shaping the way we think. 
And so in The Alchemy of Us, I tell you a little bit about the origin story for different inventions, who created the telegraph. Was it not Samuel Morse who created it the telegraph? It was Samuel Is Morse. That- oh, yeah, but he's got a compelling story. Uh, the reason why Samuel Morse created the telegraph was out of tragedy. He got news about his wife dying after she had died. If he had gotten a text message or a telegraph message, he could have rushed back home to see her and to say goodbye. Where, where was he? He was in Washington, D.C. painting because he was a painter and he lived in New Haven, Connecticut. And so it took days for information to get back and forth in, in those days. So he used electricity to make an electromagnet to make taps. That's right. So the dots and dashes that we attribute to Morse code. And so then how did that shape culture? Well, it had a limitation, his telegraph. It could only handle a couple of messages at a time. And when telegraph offices became very popular, they would tell people to be brief. And they set up a pricing structure for the prices set at 10 words or less. And so people used to use the telegraph, but they would keep their messages very brief. And then the telegraph became part of newsrooms. And again, news was sent across the country, but they would keep short sentences because reporters were told by their editors to make the sentences short. And then this style, this telegraphic style became so important that there was one reporter who loved this style. His name was Ernest Hemingway. So here we have a technology that shaped language. Sure did. Wow. Your book also uh, made me care a lot more about President Garfield than I ever thought I was going to. (laughs) Yeah, Garfield is a little known president. Uh, He didn't live very long. And uh, he shaped our desire to know more information, more news, because he was shot. And uh, people got, we talk about presidential tweets now, but there was presidential telegraph messages that were sent every day to let uh, the nation know about how he was doing his, in terms of his health. As he was becoming more and more ill, people would stand outside of these huge telegraph offices, which had chalkboard posters with information about, from the White House about his condition. So was that one of the first headline news stories, you know, the real-time headline news stories? It wasn't a headline news, but it was, it was definitely everyone gravitated. There were, there were huge crowds in front of these offices. And, you know, when we talk about the president having direct links to us today, this actually happened with Garfield. So that's what I meant by that. All right. Now, when I hear the word alchemy, I'm thinking of uh, pseudoscience, of uh, this idea that you could convert uh, materials with a certain number of protons into material that has, what, 79 protons, gold. Right, uh, right. Was a misconception. Well, that they didn't on, know about protons at the time. Yeah, but I say that went on for a long time. So mm-hmm. my sense is your book is not about pseudoscience. No, it's no. About that's cool I, science. I'm repurposing that word. I'm taking oh, it cool. back. I'm taking it back. Because it was a serious endeavor where people were systematic about adding one thing to another. Maybe it was a little misguided. But again, it was the precursor to chemistry. And so I'm not talking about anything woo-woo. This is really about how we were modified. Alchemy is about transformation. And so that's what my book is about, transformation. The book starts with this woman who's selling time. I know, crazy. Uh, There's a woman in the 19th century, her name was Ruth Belville, and she had a job of selling time. And in her day, people needed to know the precise time, but they didn't have their cell phones or their radio. Who would need to know the precise time? Well, factories would need to know. Train stations would certainly need to know for departures. um, and, And journalists would need to know. So she would go to the Royal Observatory with her pocket watch. In Greenwich. In Greenwich, yeah. So outside of London. She would take the train from her home over to London and then take the ferry over to Greenwich. 
It would take her all day. It would take her like three hours. And then she would go with her pocket watch, get the precise time, and then make her way over to London and give, show her watch to different businesses that needed to know it. And they'd give her cash money. Yeah, she, it, was subscri- it was a subscription. So, you know, uh, once a month so or once she a week. had to invest in the same way a modern, uh, let's say you are an author writing a book, a uh, bestseller about the nature of material science, you would invest in uh, a laptop. I would, uh, right. A good laptop or a good uh, desktop computer. So she must have invested in a good pocket watch. It was a very good pocket watch. And she inherited it because her father started this business. Her mother did this business with the same watch. And then she had this business and they did it for 100 years. Wait, so this was a family business It was a family, family business, yeah, started by her father. Were there other people competing with her or did she <laughs> dominate the time business? Well, they dominated for a while. And initially it was astronomers that needed to know the precise time. Uh-huh. So that's what her yeah. father did. Uh, and then people, uh, then there were other businesses that were based on the telegraph and radio that kind of took away her, her customers. But for a while, they, they owned that market, the time sales. So market. then what did she do as that business waned? Did she retire or somehow? Yeah, so she had about 50 customers uh, towards the end of her life, and then she did retire. The watch is actually, a watch she nicknamed Arnold, is actually in the Science Museum in London. So it's still around. But yeah, she retired towards the end of her career. Anyway, to our listeners, if you ever get a chance when things calm down to visit the Science Museum in London, it's really nice. The mm-hmm. London Science Museum is fantastic. Now, uh, more about me. I am really interested in horology, the study of the passage of time. Cool. Because, well, because my dad uh, became fascinated with sundials when he was a prisoner of war and the Japanese military had confiscated all their jewelry. Anyway, uh, I, got, I grew up with this whole thing about sundials and we just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Is there something else we take for granted? Well, I certainly think that time, uh, our desire to keep time and to be precise about it is actually divorced us from nature's cues. And also it's divorced us from how we actually experience time. Um, you know, I think about when I was a kid, my memories of childhood are much more rich than my memories of summers now as an adult. It's because I, I did more different things when I was a kid. Now I read email and I do Zoom calls. But it ends up that our brains measure time by our experiences, which is not a second. Stick around for more science rules after this. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. 
Science Rules is back. What is glass? This thing that you're soldering metal to. What is glass? And what what is so cool about glass? <laughs> well, I talk about the alchemy of us, about glass, how important it is for scientific endeavors, because it allows us to do what scientists do best, which is observe things. It wasn't always very good. It used to melt when acids were in it. So it's hard to do an experiment if you're doing something with a very corrosive thing, your, your experiment. Is that just because it had impurities in it? Why did it melt? It had impurities in it and it, it didn't have, the reason why it works today is because there, it has boron in it. Boron has very, very strong bonds. And so it was able to survive uh, acids, but before it didn't have boron in it. And so it would dissolve. When was before? Uh, late 1800s. So if I were Anton uh, Lee Wan Hook, yeah. pronouncing it as best I could, uh, inventing a practical microscope, my, the glass that I had access to wasn't especially good. Is that no. what you're saying? No. In fact, if you, if you look up what his early microscopes look like, he just had a drop of glass. Because yeah, a that tiny was, bit. Because yeah. that's all he could make that would be clean. Uh, it used to have lots of swirls in it, or if you looked at it, the blue colors would be on one side, the red colors would be on another side. So it was very hard to make very good glass. Did he do that? Did Lee Wan Hook make glass, or did he buy? Yeah, it he from... that, no, he probably he probably made it. And he, again, he just made that small little drop, which was enough to be a lens. Right. It was also those those early telescopes, Galileo, That's right. and, and, and so he got so he got some sand and melted it. What? How did he do? Oh, that? I see. What you're saying. Um, well, I don't know where the glassmakers were. They, he probably was able to get the materials to, to melt it. There were probably some people who worked with glass, and he said, you know, I just needed it as clear as possible. And then, you know, they were able to shape it for him. Did they say, what are you going to do with it, man? <laughs> He's like, none of your business. So glass has enabled us to have light bulbs. Right. And light bulbs have changed everything, right? Right, right. And just windows in our houses. Hey, let me ask you this. Is it a myth I think it's a myth. Does it flow? Yeah. And so the bottom of the window is thicker than the top in an old house because the glass flowed down from top to bottom. But I think they just put it in that way because. Right. They put the thicker. Logic. Yeah. They put the thicker end in. On the bottom. Right. And that was. So this is when you would spin a big disc of molten sand. Yeah. So you would get this molten sand and you would mix up other elements in there. You would stick a pipe in it and then you would spin it so that it would go out flat. And then you would cut out your glass sheet uh, from there. Okay, so here's, here's something I've wondered about. You, you mentioned uh, you know, silicon chips. You mentioned glass. I mean, they're both silicon. Was there overlap? Were the people who were working on glass you know, the same people who were thinking about other things to do with silicon that led to silicon electronics? Or is that two totally different worlds in the material science community? That's a great question. Well, se- well glass is silicon and oxygen. And silicon in your computer is pure silicon. So it's sand that's been cleaned up and it's only that element. Now, the way that they made uh, very early silicon transistors, it looked like they operated with glass because they had a a huge molten vat of pure silicon. And then they stuck this metal finger in it and then pulled it out. And when they did, a piece of silicon attached to it and it just grew and grew and grew. And then they sliced it and that's how they made the transistor. You have some just cool stories. We talked about Ruth Belleville, mm-hmm. but there's somebody credited with inventing the ironing board. Sarah Boone. That's an African-American woman from 1892 who got a patent. And uh, an ironing board. Ironing like, it board, just seems yeah. like a core. How could I live my life without an ironing board? Someone had to make it. She made it. 
And I dis- I discovered her while I was writing the chapter on Samuel Morse because she was from New Haven. And there's this folder that had uh, local local inventors in the New Haven Library. And when I opened it, a piece of paper fell out, fell out, and it said Sarah Boone. And I said, "Well, who's this?" And that's that's her story: African American woman. So you went to the New Haven Library. Yeah. And they give you access to the old paper room or something. That's right. And you uh, you have to be very careful with it when you're in there. Do you have to wear the white glove? Those cotton white gloves? gloves. You can only use pencil. It's very cold in there because they don't care about people. They want to make sure that their materials stay. Uh, you're probably lucky they even give you oxygen because oxygen is so reactive. <laughs> they would suck out the oxygen exactly. So you you just stumbled on this cool story, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's. That's what I was doing when I was writing The Alchemy of Us. I would go to archives and just stumble onto very cool stories. Sarah Boone didn't make the book, but uh, she's going to be in another another book. Okay, so she was African-American. African-American. Right? People talk about the pipeline problem, that let's say African-American woman would not go into material science because she doesn't see anybody in that business. Mm-hmm. It's not just a pipeline problem, is it? No, it's a representation problem. People have also been doing science or tinkering for ages. It's just that they get discouraged uh, because they don't see someone who looks like them or they don't get encouraged. So there's there's many things besides a pipeline. And, and actually, some people would say that the better analogy for the pipeline is it's more of a gauntlet. It's that you have to pass barrier after barrier after barrier before you get to the end point. And I think that's a little bit more fitting. And you've done that. Yeah, well, that's the reason why I wrote this book, because I wanted other people to feel that they could be encouraged to get through that, that, uh, those barriers, too. So when I was at Yale and uh, was in the mechanical engineering department, I went to a faculty party. And uh, people are introducing themselves, and they're like, hey, Anissa, who are you? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm in the mechanical engineering department. And someone said, well, I really love what you've done with HVAC. I mean, the heating, ventilation. Uh, the heating and ventilation. Presuming you were the designer right. of the... You know, and this is a faculty party. There's no office people. It's so so those kinds of assumptions you have to hit over and over again. Well, well, especially I mean, you're talking about kind of bringing these people out of the shadows. You know, the more right, more of these, right. you know, the, you know, I guess what they're now called sort of hidden hidden figures. Sure. Um, you mentioned there's one story. The, the inventor of the microphone. This is something I'd never heard about. Oh, he's another. Uh, that's another African American inventor that people haven't heard about. So, two billion microphones are made a year, and that's what's making this conversation possible. Plus, my phone's got it. My goodness. Yeah, your the phone, whole freaking you know, world. everything. That's my car. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And uh, and the inventor is Jim West. Uh, he is not in the Alchemy of Us. He's in another project that I'm in, uh, that I'm writing. But uh, people don't know about him, and he's got one of the top used patents in the world. Uh, did he get wealthy? No, he did not. He worked at Bell Laboratories, which I worked at. And Bell Laboratories has a different mindset. You're there because you want to play. You want to, you want to, they're, they're looking for a new type of microphone. And he finds one that works. It doesn't require uh, power. And it can be very, very small. And, and that's what he created. So just the mechanical vibration of the air molecules. That's right. Was he enough found- to drive this thing. Uh, it ends up that it's the material again. Uh, you know, I told you I'm a material scientist. Yes, yes, so lay it on. The material has a charge to it. It's called an electret, meaning that it will keep that charge for 100 years. So when Wow, you apply what's an a, example of this stuff? Uh, early waxes could do this. It's not very popular. It's not very, huh. it's kind of one of these weird, bizarre uh, phenomena. 
I'm and, feeling like this should be more popular, but but please go on. Well, this electret is a foil. It could keep a charge for 100 years. And when you apply a pressure from your voice, from the air moving from your hand, it will move up and down. And there are capacitive plates that will sense that. And then they can translate that pressure into electricity, into, uh, in, in, into a signal. So that's what he discovered. And when was this? Oh, he did this work in the late 60s, early 70s. So, okay, hang on. Around the developed world where we have the electric internet, there's this enormous anti-science sentiment. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any thoughts on that? Or what we're going to do about that? Well, this is the reason why I wrote my book. I wanted to change myths. And so that's why I write a lot of stories. You hear about people who don't seem like the best candidate to invent things. They just wanted to solve a problem. They come from a range of walks of life. Usually when we hear about genius, we hear Edison, we hear Einstein, that feels so distancing to most people. They're like, I can't do that. Oh, I can't be Marie Curie. I'm not going to get two Nobel Prizes you know, while a graduate student. That's, that's not going to work. But if you hear about people who just wanted to solve a problem because they were brokenhearted or maybe they wanted to make some money or they were really angry at somebody and they're like, I'm going to beat you, that resonates with people. And so I think we're anti-science because, well, we didn't, we didn't present science in a way that resonates with people. And so that's what I'm in the business of trying to do now. So along this line, we're in a situation where we're changing the world because everybody has access to a video camera. Mm-hmm. You know, the murder of George Floyd right. is, ch- is going to change history because people have these uh, mobile devices that can record things. Do you see anything else like that? Well, I definitely think that photography has been instrumental in the Black Lives Movement and also in the civil rights, uh, capturing the atrocities. You know, when people say this is happening to me, no one believed anyone. But when right. pictures were taken, then it became obvious. So I think that activists today in the Black Lives Movement and all the other movements are going to, they have tools that they can use to get the information across quickly. I don't know what will bubble up as the, the, the main tool, because I think, to be honest, I think we're beyond the old trope of how we do activism. I think they're going to create new things. I think they're going to create new t- a new type of movement. So I can't predict, but I do know photography will be part of it. So it gets into this old question that has everything to do with invention. There's two camps that uh, inventions are agnostic, that science is agnostic. It just, whatever happens, happens. And there are people that say, well, you shouldn't invent uh, something that could be used as a weapon. You shouldn't invent something that could be misused by a bad guy to cause havoc. Mm -hmm. And so along that line, we have a voicemail. This is a call-in show. We have a voicemail, which you think is very relevant. And I'd really like to hear your opinion about this on the other side. Can we roll that digital recording? Hey, Bill. uh, My name is Riley. I wanted to ask you, is there any invention that you feel humanity would have been better off without? Thank you. From the graduate, what was it? Plastics? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that we could have made plastics differently. Uh, Well, I think we still will. I think soon plastics will be uh, recoverable. And also, I have another question Mm -hmm. for you fundamentally. I mean, how much is plastic damaging the world chemically? Or is it largely inert? This is something I've wondered about quite a bit. When I say plastic, I think we mostly mean uh, polyethylene and stuff derived from that. Yeah? Well, I was speaking specifically like 
there are some plastics that can easily be recycled, but there are some plastics that can't because they've been uh, because of the way they're made. And so they're going to stick around and they're going to leach their chemicals into the water. And that's my concern. Um, I wish that we had thought about the life of plastic more than just my use of it. Like, where will it live when I'm done with it? I think we're starting to think about that now, but I wish we had done that sooner. I mean, it's great. It's like, look, I need something in this shape and I need something in this shape. Look how easy it is to make. I think that's really cool. But the the next thing should have been like, where will it live and can it be reused and, you know, Right, so it's not a question of it shouldn't have been invented, right. but that we should have just thought it through, through a little more fully. Yeah, yeah. Are there uh, and are there other examples like that? Uh, I, I mean, in a sense, it's hard to hold back the the wall against invention. Right. But are there other things that that you wish had been thought through a little bit more? Well, uh, she's Riley's asking, what, is there something we'd be better off without? I mean, plastic has made the world better for a lot of people. Right. Nuclear power has made the world better for a lot of people, but nuclear weapons have sort of made a mess of it. Right. It's hard to pick. Right, right. right. And, it, and I don't think technology is neutral. Technology is just an extension of society. So just to take a departure from plastics, uh, one of the things that uh, has come to my attention is that how technology can have a bias. When I use a certain automatic faucet in an airport on the East Coast, I have to extend my hand out and open it so that my the lighter side of my palm is present to the light sensor because it won't work when the darker side of my skin is there. So that tells me that technology is not neutral. Someone made some assumptions about how this should be used, who will be using it, and who they tested it on. So God, I mean, it took it took band aids what a century I know, to figure Band-Aids. out that, that yeah. there's more than one possible how about skin that? color. Band aids. <laughs> Science rules. We'll be right back. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You're listening to Science Rules. So wait, have you looked into stories of material science connected to, to health and medicine? I'm thinking about like hip implants and there are all, all, all kinds of things where the material side of the body is medically important. Well, in The Alchemy of Us, the only thing that I do that's medical is glass, where I talk about how we, were discover- how we discovered penicillin. and, and um, mm-hmm. How did we discover penicillin using glass? Oh, it was totally by accident. So, so Alexander Fleming, he was kind of a slob. He had all these Petri dishes hanging out in his laboratory, went on vacation, came back, started cleaning, and he saw that in one of the Petri dishes where there was a terrible bacteria, there was mold that was next to it, but the the bacteria didn't live by the mold. And so he looked at this mold and he put it in different Petri dishes with other bacteria and he saw that it killed all these other bacteria too. And so that's how penicillin... But if he hadn't had 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 glass dishes... That's right. He wouldn't have seen this. He wouldn't have seen it. And we just sort of we sort of take glass for granted. Glass is amazing. It is really well, amazing. It, it's a solid rock that you can see through for crying out and loud. You can, and the and fiber optic cables. How do they make them so clear that that a, that a laser beam can go hundreds or thousands of miles? How does how does that even work? Oh man! If you ever get a chance, 
Google how they make optical fiber. They start off with this huge bool, and then a thread is just just pulled off the bottom. That's the optical fiber. Tell us what a huge bool is for those of you who aren't baking bread. It's a huge vat of glass. And from the bottom, they have a small hole where they just pull out a little string, and that string is glass. And then they put a protective cover on it, which they call cladding, which is made out of plastic. And they can pull out miles and miles of optical fiber this way, and they actually coil it up. That's how flexible it is. And then they can put it under other protection and then put it underneath the the water. And what is the great advantage of fiber optic versus copper wire? Well, uh, the great thing about uh, optical fiber is that it's very sophisticated. It can actually amplify calls because it has other elements in it. So as the signal gets weaker, they know when that will happen. And so they put these specific elements that will boost that that signal so that it can keep traveling. Can you tell us those elements or do you have to kill us? Well, no, there are some of those lanthanides we were talking about before, erbium and others. Uh, there's there's a lot, There's a, it's much more sophisticated than that, but there are a whole bunch of other elements that that do things to that light to amplify. I assume the the, the first engineered materials in human history were, were metals, the, the earliest metals that people melted. I think right? it was clay. I think it was clay. clay. Yeah. Clay is Ceramics. a, a yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing because with clay, we built civilization. The ability to store grain and not have to worry about vermin eating it allowed us that we didn't have to hunt every day. And if we didn't have to hunt every day, well, let's, let's do this. Oh, let's create language. Let's build huts. Let's build cities. When you make materials, I think it's very important that along with that, you know, everybody talks about STEM, 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 science, technology, engineering, and math. And people talk about STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math. You are are a fan of good-looking materials, yeah? I'm now a fan of putting science, STEM, in a historical context. Because right now, if we are building STEM devices, I think it's important for us to realize how these things change us. Uh, Because we don't just want coders. We want people to be thoughtful about what they're coding. And, And history could be a good lens to teach people about the importance of what they're doing. Is there anything not in this book that you want the world to know? You've referred a few times to, I'm working on that. That's something else I'm coming up, that's coming up. Is there something that you're working on now that is we can all look forward to? Well, I'm working on a children's book about Jim West, the inventor of the microphone that's in everyone's cell oh, phones. Cool. Yeah, and I'm working on another book that looks at technology and bias, again, using stories as I've done in the past, but those are in the future. Like your hand under the faucet. Like my hand underneath the faucet. Even the inventors uh, that made things. So long ago, uh, there was a gentleman who made this gas mask and he sold it. And there was a huge fire and he rushed and saved people and people bought this gas mask. It covered his face and then it had long tubes and at the end was wet cotton, which blocked smoke from going in. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. A picture was taken of him and all of his customers in the South stopped buying it because he was African-American. So what he did is he started selling the product and saying that he was just a worker and he hired an actor who was white to say, okay, this is my boss. So this is the reason why he was able to sell his product. What after was that was guy's the, name? His name was Garrett Morgan. And he oh, created Garrett the, Morgan. He's the, the yeah, invented the traffic light. The, the traffic light too, yeah. That's and the, the same guy. Mask. Wow. Same guy. Can yeah. you imagine a world without traffic lights? I mean, really. Not just yeah. in a cynical way, but uh, right. uh, the world, he invented red and green, right? I know. He invented, I mean, he saw an accident. He's like, I think there's going to be a problem with these cars. Uh, yeah. So let me do something <laughs> wow, about it. Wow, I'll say. 
And speaking of transportation, you have this thing about uh, discs and steel rails in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We don't think much about steel, but steel changed us. It made the world shrink. It uh, made it possible for people to travel long distances. Before, if someone lived 50 miles away, you would never see them because that was a huge distance. The stagecoach only went, you know, 18 miles an hour. So on a good day. Yeah. On a good day. That's right. Yeah, when but when raining. we got... Yeah. But when we got rails and trains, you know, those distances were no big deal anymore. So like work and relationships and all those things. That's changed. right. That's right. Um, you know, you can, you know, before, if you were traveling from Boston to DC, that would take days uh, with the train, it takes a couple of hours. And so if information could get across, people can get across, all these different things can get across. And so steel was probably discovered by accident. Everybody's steel is iron with some carbon in it. That's right. That's right. And we're talking about 0.3% carbon, right? 0.4%. That's right. It has to be a very precise amount. And it, it is quite old, but the, about, the ability to make a lot of it was a huge, huge achievement in materials. How did that come about? It's this gentleman came, uh, named Henry Bessemer. And he wanted to make better steel because he was, he was kind of a, he was an industrialist. He wanted to make some money. He lived in England. England was at war. They needed cannons. Uh, the cannons that they were making were very brittle. So when they would put a cannonball in it, it would explode, but it would shatter and it would kill the people who were, they were uh, that's, on the that's wrong a, side. not a desirable outcome. If you're no, that's the, a yeah. bad design. So he's, he was out to make better steel for cannons. And so he found out that if you had a material of, of carbon and iron that had a lot of carbon in it, and if you uh, put in air, let as you blowed air in it, uh, a reaction would occur between the air and the carbon so that he can remove the carbon from it. And then he could put a precise amount in it. Burn off the carbon. Burn off the, the carbon, Bessemer yeah. converter. I, I, I grew up in, in Pittsburgh. And so, you know, the history of steel and the Bessemer process, that was sort of part of, our, part of our local history. This changed the world, right? And something that fascinated me when I was a mechanical engineer is railroad wheels, subway train wheels, have a tire. Like the steel wheel has another piece of a, a ring of steel on it that is replaced from time to time. And next time you're near a railroad train, look closely at the wheel and you can see the tire and they, mm. they heat it up. You know, they get it a little larger, then put it on there and it shrinks and that's it. Man, it does not come off for a long old time. That's stuff we take for granted. Absolutely. We take it all for granted. I tell everybody, right. you look and around invented the room. It and, and behind every inventor we know, that's part of what's so cool about your book, behind the inventors you know are... 10, 100, 1,000 inventors you don't know. Right. Well, well, steel also made it possible for us to have tall buildings because we used to only build buildings that were no more than nine stories high because that's what people were willing to, to the number of stairs they were willing to climb. But when we had steel and the discovery of the elevator, then we can have skyscrapers. Oh, my goodness. Corey. Oh, my God. Corey. Bill. I hear something. Did you hear that? With all that talk about materials, all of a sudden sound, the sound of thunder, the flash of lightning. It's the lightning round. The lightning the round, lightning round. Lisa, yes. Uh, it, it's okay. time for lightning fast questions and lightning fast answers. So here we go. Uh, Anissa, what do you think is the most underappreciated material? Steel. Steel underappreciated. So what is it about steel? It's got... Steel made it possible for us to connect the country. The country was made out of disparate pockets where people didn't know each other, didn't get news from each other. We were able to 
move to different places. And where do we get steel? We melt down rocks in Minnesota? We get ore of, we get ore of iron and we get carbon. Carbon can come from many different sources, from trees and things like that. So we put those things together. What is the most underrated invention? The phonograph. Phonograph. Cool. Yeah, phonograph. the phonograph. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah, the ability to store sound. I mean, we take it for granted, but um, it's kind of wonderful. Yeah, that was a, it was a that was a pretty big deal at the time. It was. I mean, you could never. I mean, anybody who lived before the phonograph, you know, you don't know what they sounded like. You don't know what Shakespeare sounds like. You don't know what Lincoln sounds like. These people are George Washington. We have no idea what they sounded like. Uh, is there an overrated invention? Uh Silicon, I think. Silicon's overrated? The switch is the paradigm-shifting idea. And the ability to amplify signals was the vacuum tube. Silicon was just a better version of both. It's just a, just a smaller, faster switch. It's smaller and faster switch. So tell us how the switch, the switch enabled everything. Give us a, a moment on that. Well, when the telephone was first invented, it was no more sophisticated than a cup with two, str- uh, two cups and a string. Where, you know, I could talk to you and, I, and, that would, and you could talk to me and that's it. But the ability to, for me to talk to Corey and then to talk to you required a switch to be able to transfer that, that signal to another line. And that happened when George Coy uh, develop, developed the first switchboard. And it was that that put us on the path to more automated switches and then eventually to silicon, which is actually a switch. Uh, so now you have, let's say, half a minute. Convince somebody listening to become a material scientist. Mm. If you want to know how the world works... You have to know what, how atoms behave. And material scientists are atom whisperers. We learn about how atoms interact <laughs> with each other. And then they, we convince them to do new things to make new materials. Atom whisperers. Ah, spoken like a true evangelist. Uh, man. Nice. Uh, if you were going to be doing something else besides material science, what would it be? I think I want to be an astronaut now. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Why do you want to be an astronaut? I, every time I look at the moon, I just say, wow, I'm really so sad that I may never see you. I mean, never walk around. Never walk around, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cool. Wow, Anissa, this is just cool. This has just been fantastic. And check out her book, everybody, The Alchemy of Us, How Humans and Matter Transformed One Another. Uh, our guest today has been Dr. Anissa Ramirez. She hosts the podcast Science Underground and writes books. And she's got big ideas on the next few books, I can tell, that are going to change the world. Remember, when it comes to exploring the material world around us, science science rules. And if you like science rules, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. It helps us out, helps other people learn about the show, helps us know what you want to hear. So thank you. Be sure to look at my socials, as the kids call them, for more information about our upcoming guests. I'm at Bill Nye on all those things. Meanwhile, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, once again, give us a call at 201-472-0785. And you say, why isn't that some whimsical thing that we can remember? Well, when you get the zeros in then, it's hard to get a bunch of letters. Or you can submit a question to AskBillNye.com. Science Rules is produced by Harry Huggins and this very same Corey S. Powell. Hey, that's me. Casey Halford mixed this episode and composed our original theme. Josephine Mortarana is our executive producer. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer at Stitcher. And at Stitcher, everyone, Science Science rules. Rules. Now remember to wash your hands. Wear a mask and let's keep track of each other. We got to be safe out there during this pandemic.
if you ever go to the tech, they have a whole thing about the bulls. Yeah. Like loaves of bread of silicone, of silicon rather. And God, that just ended my career. Of silicon. <laughs> and uh, It's a very, a very specialized kind of mistake. Stitcher. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.